0: Welcome to another episode of At War. Thank you to everyone who tuned in to our last episode of the Afghan Peace Process. Today, we'll be speaking on Sino-Russian engagements in South Asia and their possible implications on Pakistan. We are joined today by Sayed Ali Zia Jafri, who is a foreign affairs and uh, strategic affairs analyst. Ali is a research associate at the University of Lahore Center for Security, Strategy, and Policy Research, where he focuses on foreign policy and nuclear deterrence strategy. He is also the associate editor of Pakistan Politico, and has served as a visiting fellow at the Stinson Centre. Thank you for joining us, Ali. Uh,
1: thank you, Mubarsha, for having me. I have been following Act 4 ever since it started, and I must say that you engage some excellent speakers for discussions on some of the most important topics that the region has to, has to and should discuss.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Uh, before we start, would you give our audience a background on, and, and some context on Russia's recent engagements in South China, in South Asia, And, you know, it's uh, also its growing partnership with China. Okay, so I would divide this answer into two parts. Rather, I would
1: give you two reasons for this. One is the vacuum and the other is the appetite for filling that vacuum. So the vacuum that was created in South Asia and the entire region was of the U.S. retrenchment from the region. Uh, The U.S. was trying to pull out from Afghanistan. The U.S. was finding it very difficult to negotiate with Iran despite signing the JCPOA and the U.S. was not on good terms with Pakistan and of of course add to the mix the ever so brewing U.S. Sino rivalry. So that gave Russia a very good pretext of you know putting into practice or starting off with with what uh, what Putin called the Greater Eurasian Partnership. So what Putin wants to, to, you know, do for Russia is to pivot to the East. The Russians believe that it's time for Russia to connect to its roots, which lie in Asia and to the East. And the idea is to, to, you know, strengthen and to bolster a Eurasian partnership that relies on primarily linking the Eurasian... Economic Union with China's BRI. So that is the context and that is what drove Russia to this region and uh, one of the underlying factors for that equation was That Russia had to reassert its power Russia had to play a very significant role in global affairs as was enunciated in its concept of foreign policy released in 2016 so the idea was for Russia to play a a lead role in shaping international conflicts and in a bit to reassert itself as a power to reckon with. Because, you know, uh, ever since the end of the Cold War, Russia was, you know, it as a power, as a global power. So it wanted to reassert itself. And the vacuum that the Americans provided uh, gave Russia an ideal opportunity to start its forays into South Asia. And... uh, Part of that equation uh, or or the, the crux of fulfilling that aim lies in Russia not being at loggerheads with China. So if you want to move to the East, it would be foolish for you to take on the dragon or take on the elephant in the room. China, while being a benign force, is a force to reckon with. And... It is only prudent for any nation, including Russia, to mend fences with, with the powerful country in the region. And Russia believes, and it's, uh, there are statement, statements to corroborate that claim, Russia believes that its, it's ties with China are critical uh, to achieving its broader goal in Eurasia. And the linkage, the linchpin that Russia is looking at is China. And that is why the relationship is uh, strengthening by the day. Uh, Because there is this complementarity between the two. The complementarity is that while Russia gives China access to European markets, uh, China gives Russia access to the East. So this is a very good blend that both countries have created. Now we can say that... uh, Obviously, Russia does not want any other power to uh, to usurp its own area and sphere of influence in the in Central Asia, uh, but it is a necessity that that the Russians are are cognizant of. And uh, there's there was a recent book uh, authored by Daniel Markey titled "The China's Western Horizon." I reviewed that. Uh, last year and he made a very good uh, statement in the book. He said that um, China's and Russia's China-Russia China partnership coupled with United States' growing acrimony with Russia has given an ideal opportunity for both countries to uh, paper over their differences. So uh, he also said that China is not trying is not trying to you know disturb the equation in Central Asia. So, while Central Asia could be uh, considered as a as a very you know tenuous spot for U.S. for Russia China relations, but they are meddling along well so far because of United States unilateral uh, actions against Russia and the fact that Russia is not uh, the West is. Is hell bent upon, uh, you know, isolating Russia. Although I believe that isolation is not a term that we should be using in a very in this globalized context. I don't believe in this term at all. You cannot isolate countries. It's very difficult. Neither let's suppose now, no, neither Pakistan can be isolated nor India can be isolated. It is a hoax, and I think it's the term should be revisited going forward. Right.
0: Um. I want to build on something you said about Russia's appetite and Russia's desire to reassert itself. Uh, Professor Stephen Kotkin from Princeton, he is the author of perhaps some of the most comprehensive works on the history of, uh, on the life of Joseph Stalin. He, in a recent talk, when when speaking about Russia and particularly Russia's engagement, engagements in the Middle East, he characterizes Russia as a declining power. And, you know, he says it's more Russia's is just trying to stay relevant uh in in global global power dynamics would you would you agree with this characterization and if if i add you know russia's involvement in south asia into the mix as well particularly at the afghan peace process does russia really have a role to play in all of this and um so last week when we had um father mayu here he said you know regional powers like russia can actually play a role uh, in the afghan peace process so if you could also shed some light on that as well i think this is a good set of questions that you've posed uh, I think uh, I
1: would not like to call Russia a declining power. I would like to call Russia a rejuvenated power, or a power that wants to rejuvenate itself, reassert, re research on the global stage. So yes, wherever you will find that your adversary is dilly dallying, or your adversary is at a weak is on a weaker wicket, like the Americans were and are in Afghanistan. As as a rational actor in global politics, you will definitely try to, uh, you know, ingress in that area. So the Russians were, they they saw the writing on the wall that the U.S. was not willing to budge an inch on on its position regarding the Taliban uh, back in the day. Uh, While Trump was very adamant in uh, uh, bringing his troops home uh still a lot of things were happening in afghanistan which uh, which uh, um made us believe that a military heavy policy in afghanistan is is what the americans are looking at and this is what was happening so the and the russians started their peace overtures uh in afghanistan moscow talks and the idea for them uh, for them was that they should they should create a process whereby a political dialogue could be initiated between various warring parties, including uh, the administration in Kabul and the Taliban. So we could say that they were on the same page uh, with Pakistan and other other regional stakeholders, minus the United States. So Russia started started those initiatives, and uh, it because it felt that there is a um, there is a gap that can be filled through means that the US is not so let me pause here let me take you back to 20 uh, the end of 2017 and the start of 2018 so there were three back to back documents were released the national security strategy the national defense strategy and the nuclear posture review if we even were to keep the nuclear posture review aside the two documents the national defense strategy and the national security strategy clearly outlined russia and china as two of the principal threats facing the united states and those which the united, united states should have counter should should and must counter over and above the threat of terrorism so one of the things was that that while china is using predatory economics to um, you know subvert and to reconfigure uh, the so called rules based international order Russia is trying to disintegrate NATO and Russia is trying to uh, intrude into open spaces. So while the US had said that Russia is the main threat, obviously Russia being one of the actors in the global system, it also obviously had those apprehensions. So perhaps it it found Afghanistan as a a soft belly, as an underbelly, uh, where it could have played a role. And another reason... And a very immediate reason for Russia's uh, interest in Afghanistan was related to uh, the ISIS. Russia was not uh, and is not willing to let ISIS consolidate itself in um, Afghanistan because that would then be a great security threat to the uh, to the Russians because of its uh, Afghanistan's proximity to Central Asia, and again going uh, back to where we started from, the the whole idea behind the Greater Eurasian Partnership uh, would um, you know be of little use absent peace in a Af- peace in Afghanistan, and this is exactly what Pakistan says that Pakistan's capacity, Pakistan's propensity and Pakistan's bid to be a vehicle of economic connectivity and integration is contingent upon peace and stability in Afghanistan. So, the same goes for Russia. So, if we want to, let's suppose, uh, embark on that n CPAC initiative, linking the northern part of CPAC with Central Asia and beyond. So, we... Both countries need peace. Now, this is where the role of Russia comes into the mix. Uh, I do understand that many countries are playing a role in the Afghan peace process and many of them agree on a lot of of, uh, things that are taking place with regard to the Afghan peace process. The greater the stakes, the greater the role. But can Russia... Use that role and those stakes to influence the outcome in Afghanistan. That I'm not sure of, because whether we like it or not, the U.S., the Taliban, and the government in Kabul—these three warring parties are pretty adamant in their own maximalist positions. So unless the gridlock is resolved, unless um, Somebody with influence on all of those, uh, you know, plays a, an exceedingly important role. I don't see Russia in and of itself playing a great and a, and a very, uh, you know, I want to use this word a very kind of a distinctive role in the Afghan peace process, which could have a which could have a decisive impact. So this is something that we need to understand. A lot of processes have taken place on on multiple tracks. Pakistan has been a uh, has been a very important actor. Russia has been an important actor. Iran's growing ties with Taliban uh, are also a factor that um, has you know affected the Afghan peace process in more ways than one. So a lot of things are happening, but uh, the ultimate uh, movers and shakers of the Afghan peace initiative and the and the afghan peace process are those three warring parties which are not ready
0: to budge an inch from their maximalist positions. right that's it's very interesting and you know let's let's just steer the conversation a little bit towards uh, towards the u.s and russia and china i i'm going to ask two very short one-word questions from you uh, do you ever see um do you ever see a situation where russia and the u.s would be allied against china Yes, yes or no, and I, I'll build up on that in a
1: bit. Mm, mm, it does not merit a yes or no quite answer. But okay, sure. Then
0: I then I'll uh-huh. expand on the question. So, so ba- I um, consider myself as you know an adherent of the the structural realist school of IER, and so and I followed the works of uh, uh, scholars like Mirshaimer and Stephen Walt, uh, Walt a lot in this in this regard. So back in the early two thousands, uh, Professor Mearsheimer he came up with this whole theory that why. Um, as as China's economic uh, growth will translate into military power, uh, its rise will not be peaceful. Because as China wants to become a regional hegemon, the U.S., which has had a history of not liking peer competitors when it comes to regional hegemons, it would you know want to contain China's growth. Um, he gives the example of um, how the U.S. contained Imperial Germany uh, before uh, during World War One, uh, Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan during World War Two, and then the Soviet Union post World War Two, and so, and some of his predictions have come true in this regard. We, we saw Hillary's infamous pivot to Asia and the Obama, policy, uh, Obama administration, you know, switching towards Asia uh, in, in the, in his, uh, during his second term. But where I disagree somewhat with Mir Shimer is he says that to balance China, uh, the United States would depend on a balancing coalition of states like India, the, the coastal states in the Pacific, and also Russia do you do you foresee that happening that you know russia joining the us camp just to contain china
1: i don't foresee that and i say this because with all due respect to the great Mir shimer i've read him a lot uh, for all the nuclear and non nuclear purposes to put it very frankly uh, i think russia, china confronting china is not as of now in the strategic interests of Russia, so Russia, uh, realism, whether it's structural or classical or whatever, is hinging upon national interests. So it would it would be difficult for us to imagine in the near future that China were, that Russia would ally with its strategic competitor in the United States to. Challenge China. Now China is part of the region. China is here to stay. America, at the end of the day, is an extra regional power. And as Nehru used to say in the in the Cold War era, "Asia for Asians." So I think it gone at the days when there was a Sino-Soviet split. We saw a, a very famous crisis take take place in 68 69 uh gone are those days the dependency between uh, between the two countries is mutual it's robust and it's ever-growing and china's geoeconomic juggernaut dovetails nicely with russia's dream of you know recalibrating the asian order So, Russia does not have the vehicles right now to mount a challenge to China in a manner that also does not give its main competitor, the United States, an upper hand. So I'm not saying that that Russia and China are best buds, they can't be best buds because russia at the end of the day would want to be to be at par or even to be a greater power than china but for that to happen russia needs china for now and russia would never want to give the united states an upper hand so this is these are the uh, you know theatrics of global politics uh, you have to choose a lesser evil and for Russia, right now, China is the lesser evil, evil because of its strategic orientation. If the orientation were to be different, then obviously we could have said that, okay, the Russians, uh, the Russians could open with the US and counter China, but I don't see that happening. Uh, it has got a lot to do with how the West has continually slapped sanctions on Russia. The West is, uh, especially the US, is uh, at loggerheads uh, with Russia in the Middle East. So, a lot of things compound. And again, going back to this recent book uh, uh, written by Dan Markey, he said that Putin is blinded by anti Americanism. So, that has put in his head to stay for the next five to six years. So, he will more than likely leave a mark and he would not like to you know come off the ramp to accommodate the us and to counter a partner that is giving it a lot of strategic advantages Uh, not least because it is trying to uh, fit in well with china's uh, with russia's uh, Uh, Eurasia policy uh, but also because uh, Russia wants to play uh, a significant role in shaping global conflicts and in shaping uh, the resultant or the ensuing peace processes so Russia can't do that that alone so it needs China to complement it and to complement
0: and you know amplify its, its efforts just because it has to come to the US so this is what so, so, and if I if I want, if I borrow another phrase from Mearsheimer, he always says that you know states want to become the biggest bully in the playground. So, if Russia continues to grow using China as you know as a growth mechanism, um, there will come a point when you know Russia and China might feel that you know the other power has become too big uh, for their own strategic concerns. Then, what do you think would happen? Then, yes, but look, if Russia is expanding. If, if,
1: if Russia expands China would also be expanding so the both the balance of cloud would determine what what shape their relations take going forward um, just because they have a common competitor in the United States would it be something reasonable to argue that Russia could, uh, could going forward, take on China without U- United States' support? No. So why would Russia take United States' support um, in countering China, even if it has to counter China? It would rather do it alone, but it would not be in a position to do it alone because China's dream... Which involves and which wants to involve uh, a host of countries in the midst is is too big to be shattered by these gimmickries so if let's suppose sixty to eighty countries jump on the b r i bandwagon and they and those countries would then be lying right next to china to russia's periphery it would be very difficult for russia to break free and then counter china uh, it can only counter china going forward if it is if it is to take united states help and that that i don't see um, as a, as a possibility even a remote possibility going forward so i think this is not likely to happen uh, and and the other important thing here is that uh, China does not look at international relations the way the U.S. looks. So China may not give Russia the impression that it is trying to be the preponderant uh, country in the region and, it, and its growth is is happening at the expense of Russia. So this is something that we need to understand. China's growth model, China's bid to expand the tentacles of power is not something that would make other countries uncomfortable, especially countries with which China has strong strategic partnership. And Russia is one of those. So this is something that we we need to bring into our discourse when we talk about Russia and China
0: agreed and my i would add one more criticism to western scholarship in this regard and you know i think the same applies to the india pakistan situation as well that when they when they are analyzing relations between the us and russia and then you know trying to project what might happen in the future they always think from a very us centric lens so you know even these conversations about you know kashmir being a nuclear flashpoint and how india and pakistan's behavior might you know translate into a nuclear war or not that's another debate but my point is the us has never been in an adversarial relation with country with which it has a lot of geographic proximity russia and china at the end of the day they share borders Pakistan and India. At the end of the day, they share borders. So Western scholars might want to, you know, um, beat the 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 drum of war that you know oh, all hell is going to break loose, but you know they don't realize the on ground uh, realities in our in, in our in our backgrounds. Absolutely. Um. So coming down from you know the uh, the macro level to let's let's focus on South Asia. And in in the context of the same question of you know how the US would want um, to create a balancing coalition to contain China. A lot is made of the U.S. and India partnership. You know, we are given examples of um, the United States pushing for an NSG waiver for India, um, the the, civil, uh, the civilian nuclear deal between the U.S. and uh, India in, the 2008, in 2008. But in this regard, recently there's been a lot of uh, outcries, specifically in some quarters of the Indian strategic circles, about the freedom of navigation operations by the U.S. Navy in the Indian Ocean. Um, going forward as India, you know, tries to get deeper into American orbit, do you think this is something that would increase, or um, as some people in Pakistan would like to believe, uh, do you think this is uh, a sign of things going sour between the U.S. and India? Okay, before I answer this question, I would uh, uh, agree with you on
1: how the West sees other conflicts in other regions through a very You know narrow lens and the framework is is you know limited to those old theories of international relations which normally would not apply to every other country Uh, let's take the example of uh, theories on deterrence theories on escalation Um, what what was applicable during the cold war let's say, the 44-rung escalation ladder introduced by Herman Khan, might might not be applicable to South Asia because the dynamics are very different. Of course. So, there. I always say that the West knows about South Asia, but the West does not necessarily understand South Asia. Absolutely. Knowledge and understanding are two different things. So, they do not understand the dynamics of South Asia Uh, because they are applying their own models to assess South Asia. So that is something that needs to change. And it would only change if original thinking is channeled out of this region uh, through the help of young scholars like you. So this is something that we need to understand. If we want to enrich the discourse on South Asian strategic stability, on South Asian return stability, We need to put in the hard yards when it comes to uh, expanding the literature on these subjects. And we must use our own lens. The other day I was talking to someone and I was saying that the only country that Russia supports is Russia. You talked about structural realism. You talk about any kind of theory in international relations. At the crux of those all lie this inherent, lies this inherent commitment to your own national interests. So, we should not be borrowing strength from anybody. Or we should not be, uh, you know, excited or overexcited about certain events happening in our, in our periphery and in the wider region. Now coming to your point regarding the freedom of navigation operation that took place yesterday, day before yesterday. Look, I firmly believe that the Pakistanis and the Americans know each other. They have worked together. They have had peace. They have fought together. They have messed things up together. So they know each other. They know how to figure out a way. They'll navigate troubled waters. But the US and India do not know each other as much. So there is this palpable tension. The tension is that the US thinks that India would cling on to its so-called strategic autonomy, while the Indians feel that the US would not do enough. They also even, even, you know, crib as to why the US has not been able to punish Pakistan for its so-called acts of terrorism. And we always that the US, uh, you know, bails out Pakistan, which is absolutely uh, debatable. Uh, in fact, there is a lot that one can discuss and for that, we need a separate session. But now, the structure of global politics, the structure of the region demands closeness between India and the US. Replace India with any other country in that place. It could be Timbuktu. It could be Zimbabwe. If Zimbabwe was at at this place where India is. We would have had strong relations between US and Zimbabwe. So. to To counterbalance China. The US needs India. So these. You know. Bickering these kinds of bickering do take place. It's not a big deal. So nothing has happened day before yesterday that demands a jubilation from Pakistani voters. Pakistan, of course, has not responded. And why should it respond? It is not, we should stay out of it. Sit this one out. So if we are thinking that uh, starting Monday, the U.S. and China, the U.S. and uh, India would, you know, cut off data. It's not happened. This is not. This is not how states behave. Just because of one thing, we have differences with China. I'm sure there are many a difference um, when it comes uh, when it comes to Pakistan-China relations. But that does not mean uh, that we have, you know, broken off with China. Look, we have tried to renegotiate. The terms of the China-Pakistan economic corridor. Much has been made of that. Uh, CPEC is dead narrative was, uh, was, you know, proliferated. CPEC has slowed down. Uh, China has dumped Pakistan. A lot of things came to the fore. But still Pakistan and China are going strong. So this is this is how the US and India would, would you know, go on to continue their partnership and these things do not you know carry much weight as far as I'm concerned and these things happen once you're in a partnership once you once two once two different countries with different strategic orientations uh, despite having mutual interests uh, in some areas when they interact these things are bound to happen so but we should not you know inflate or we should not Uh, overhype the effects of this little bout of indiscretion that took place and it's not even an indiscretion the uh, the americans uh, do not uh, at times recognize easies when it comes to uh, navigating so i think uh, i should not i'm not reading too much into it and this is how it should be
0: So sticking with India, and this might come across as a slightly provocative question, but I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, You know, some people might argue that amidst all of this global power struggle that's been going on in South Asia, India has managed to, you know, play its cards really well. India was able to gain a waiver on the import of Iranian oil, even when the sanctions kicked in. Russia remains India's biggest arms supplier. And now, uh, at the same time, India is getting weapons from the West. Even US suppliers are now trying to, you know, sell um, uh, sell weapons to India. Um, so, you know, could it be argued that the US-India partnership is perhaps overblown? Um, because India does not follow the years into everything. And, um, and, and but, but when it comes to things that it wants, so for example, the Afghan peace process, India has managed to somehow creep into the whole conversation, to say the least. So do you think India is the real winner out of all of this? I would not say that. I would not go so far. India is not the winner.
1: Again, going back to the structure, it is the structure that is, that is, that has you know, highlighted India as a counterweight to China. Uh, it is not as as much uh, a result of India's brilliance or you know diplomatic nows. It is a result of just in India being where India is. Uh, obviously, India rode a rough shot over others when it when it came to foreign relations because there was a there was a time when the indian economy was going great guns so that helped uh, nobody would refuse to uh, give you defense articles if you have the money to buy them so if I, if if i am i am the seller and if you have the required money i would i would give you what you want why would i refuse taking bucks from you so this is this is as simple as that Uh, You talked about the fact that India is, you know, having the best of both the worlds, if I were to put it uh, mildly. Um, Look, international relations does not uh, follow an either-or principle. It does not and should not follow a zero-sum game so you could have relations with uh, with two diametrically opposite countries and it would be not so wise to say that okay if if you are talking to me you should not be talking to my this is now it, this is not how the cookie crumbles so we need to understand this uh, coupled with this is my assertion that you cannot isolate any country in a globalized world. So if India talks about the Afghan peace process, so it it does not change things on ground. Uh, India has not been able to achieve its goals in Afghanistan. The goal uh, which relate uh, which relates to you know crushing Pakistan by sandwiching it has not been has not borne fruit because pakistan has played the game very well uh, but for us to say that pakistan is wholly and solely responsible for bringing together all parties on the table is a bit too far fetched i say this because you know we have Uh, not done a good job when it comes to selling our narrative. Our narrative, despite us doing greatly and meritoriously in the war on terror, uh, has not has not corresponded with those sacrifices and those things. So, it is doubly important for us to match our enunciations with our official policy so our official policy is that we do not have that bigger clout in Afghanistan which could allow us to single-handedly shape the outcome in Afghanistan so if we are told that look Pakistan has kicked out India from Afghanistan, Pakistan has brought Russia, Iran, China, everybody on the same table. So in effect, you are corroborating the American version. This is exactly what the Americans tell us. The Americans have been saying all along that had it not been for Pakistan's uh, subversive role, we would have won the war in Afghanistan. And this is what we deny, and rightly so, because we say that we do not have the prowess and the capacity to shape the outcome in in Afghanistan. And what we can do is just to facilitate dialogue between warring parties to an extent. The onus to complete the peace process, uh, much to the benefit of Afghanistan, Pakistan, and the wider region and beyond, Lies on the Afghans and the US administration. So, but when you say this, the US could snap back and say, okay, this is exactly what you what we tell you. If you can do so much, then it's when your you response. Your responsibility yeah. to get the get the Taliban to stop fighting. Of course, yeah. But Pakistan does not and cannot do as much as people expect them to do this is only fair for us to say that look we had a, had a role we played that role in to the best of our abilities and that and we'll continue to push for that but that's it pakistan cannot be made a scapegoat so for pakistan to no, uh, to not be made a scapegoat pakistan has to understand and pakistan does understand but it's it's important for for pakistan to ensure that the that the correct narrative goes out at all levels official semi-official and generally so there is a need for us to educate uh, how how we want to go about things. a lot of i've heard, of, heard heard a lot of a lot of people say that a block will be created Turkey would be in that block, China would be in that block, Iran would be in that block. But Pakistan officially says we are not into block politics. So why do you want to give the impression that we want to create a block? Why should there be a block? Do we want to, you know, supersede our own interests and pool them in a bid to make a block?
0: We been part of blocks huh. in the past. We
1: have been part of blocks in the past. Why do we need to? Look, we... Officially, Pakistan has been very categorical. Pakistan says, and I quote Dr. Moid Yusufair. he said in one of his talks at the Atlantic Council last year, he said, if one country invests 10, uh, 10 billion rupees in Pakistan or establish, establishes 10 plants in Pakistan, and, and if the other wants to establish 20, more than welcome. So, when we are trying to project this narrative, then all these, you know, uh, talk and euphoria regarding block does not make sense. And this is a world where everything is picked. Social media is monitored. Everything is monitored. So, one has to be very careful
0: and, and choose words correctly and very adroitly to say the least. Absolutely. And, you know, as we come back, bring the conversation towards pakistan i you know they say that people who do not learn from their past mistakes have to repeat them um if we look at the era of the cold war pakistan you know some might argue we completely side uh, put all our eggs in the american basket and perhaps that didn't play out too well for us now when we find ourselves again in a multipolar great power competition how do you think what's the best way for pakistan to you know balance between china and russia who are in our own neighborhood but also the us which whether anyone likes it or not is probably going to stay a great power for the next century or so look
1: we could say anything we could say that look uh, the americans if you cross the line we we'll do this and we we'll do that but we also need to be pragmatic we must not forget that we uh, our power base, our military power especially, is, is a product of our partnership with the US during the Cold War. Our nuclear program was Expedited, it was facilitated because the US, as Dr. Rabia writes in a book, turned a blind eye because of its geostrategic interest in Afghanistan. So, somebody was saying the other day that we have gained nothing from the US. I think that's a very unfair statement. The US has been as unfair to us as any other actor. Would have been. If our interests with China. Were to become capricious going forward. China would also act very unfair. The Russians would also act very unfair. So you know. Putin is not Imran's cousin. Putin is not is no friend of Pakistan. Putin is only a friend of Russia. We need to get this straight. So. So because the us is an extra regional power its interests with pakistan uh, with pa- uh, may not converge with any country for a longer period of time so that you know inconsistency is is a given now what pakistan has to do is it is very difficult but pakistan has to do this pakistan has to take its ties with china with Russia, with the US and with other countries separately from each other. It has to deal with them separately. It should not be using lenses to look at each relationship. We cannot expect Russia to ditch India. Just because Russia is aligning with us or Russia wants to align with us. We should look at Pak-Russia relations in its own right, in their own right. pardon. So, if Russia wants to expand tactical level cooperation with Pakistan on counterterrorism, brilliant. We should go for it. If Russia wants to invest in energy pro- uh, projects inside Pakistan, brilliant. Go for it. But we should not let india dictate our foreign policy so when we focus on what india is doing all the time and we make our relations we we make our relations uh, dependent upon how certain sets of countries deal with india then I think it's not something good. Pakistan is a very important and a very powerful country in its own right. And it should take decisions, it should enter into agreements, it should enter into partnerships by just looking at its its own interests. I can understand. Uh, We have talked, we are here, hearing this geoeconomics mantra since a long uh, uh, off late we are hearing this Uh, it's very good it is the way to go forward but when we talk about geo that automatically brings your location into the mix so our geo economic potential is is a product of our geo strategic potential so both are intertwined. So we need to understand that. We need to have a a very good work relationship with the US. We need to expand our strategic relations with China. And we need to obviously take incremental steps towards improving relations with Russia. All of this would not be easy to do simultaneously. There would be many challenges. But the greater the challenges, the greater the opportunities. Of course. The idea here is that look, uh, your ability to navigate foreign policy challenges is but a function of your strength at home. If you will be strong at home, if you will reform your economy, if you will be able to reform your judicial system, if you will be able to actually expand the concept of security to, to make the citizens of Pakistan and the youth of Pakistan especially more secure, you will be in a better position to play an assertive role when it comes to foreign relations, so this is something that we need to understand. I'll take this opportunity to also briefly talk about uh, the Middle East. You know, I do believe what whatever happens in one region affects, to a certain degree, uh, the events in the other region as well. So, what's happening in the Middle East, Pakistan cannot stay aloof because of a host of factors. So again. We are an emotional people. Uh, Rightly so, we take potshots at Saudi Arabia for, you know, being all chummy with Modi. And we take potshots at the United Arab Emirates for, you know, awarding Modi. And uh, even we were very angry when Saudi Arabia uh, invited the Indian Army Chief but we cannot dictate them we cannot we don't have the clout we don't have the influence to dictate them so if you want to get into that position you want you should work on tilting the balance of influence in your favor so if the saudis have leverage over us we also have leverage over them but as of now unfortunately this Riyadh's leverage on us is more because Riyadh bailed us out when we were staring at default. Yep. So imagine if the situation is reversed, then we would be in a position to tell them, okay, look, don't go towards India. This is not something good. So we need to work on work on putting things right at home. We need to reform. Reform, reform, reform. This is this is one word that I'll repeat all the time. Because that would feed into your military power that would feed into you into your economic power and that would feed into your uh, overall spectrum of power in in so in um, as far as foreign policy is concerned another thing while we lambash Saudi Arabia we also so i i i don't want to say this but let me let me say this I do believe that there are lobbies in Pakistan we have the Saudi lobby we have the GCC lobby we have the Iranian lobby we have the Qatari lobby that comes in GCC but I don't see a Pakistani lobby so let's try to establish a Pakistani lobby that says okay if Iran is giving us some benefits in this and this area grab them if the Saudis are giving us certain strategic breathing space uh, certain strategic pathways grab it if malaysia is helping us imp- uh, helping us turn a page in regard to our tourism industry take it the more you will be strong from inside the more you'll be able to conduct an independent foreign policy sovereignty is a very very fancy concept it is the concept that Dictates the Westphalian, Westphalian system, but sovereignty is also subjective, and sovereignty is not only compromised when uh, compromised when an aircraft or a or is or a packet of aircraft um, crosses the border. It is attenuated when you are asked to take decisions that you normally do not want to take. So, for Pakistan to avoid walking a tightrope, Pakistan has to work on expanding and increasing its power base, and that will then uh, feed or, feed into our overall complex of power, and that will help us, you know, uh, navigate foreign policy challenges going forward.
0: And yeah, so some very interesting points there, you know, with the with the the question of Saudi Arabia and Iran, I always say that. We are willing to become a battleground for proxy warfare between other countries without considering their implications on what might happen to Pakistan as a result. Also, I am glad you raised the point that you know there is it's it's like it's very frustrating to see that there 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 is a lot of voices in the in the Pakistani strategic community who, who tend to analyze everything that's happening through an Indian lens. So even when the Russian foreign minister was uh, was in Pakistan this this past week, um, there were some who were saying that you know oh this means that. India and Russia are no longer getting along. We should just, you know, it's it's frustrating that why can't we just look at things from a Pakistani perspective? If that What can Pakistan gain, gain from all of this? Everything ultimately for some people comes down to, oh, what does this mean for India? Look, the the worst thing to do is to outsource your policy to somebody else.
1: Your policy should be in your hands. So why should we look out the window and use a binoc- binocular and say, look, India has done this, In certain aspects, that is important. Especially in the nuclear realm, that's important. But we could have a long discussion on that. And why do we do that? And why that is important? But at times, you need to take a very, very different course. Until unless you won't take that course and you won't take that route, it will be very difficult for you to assert yourself. Why should we bother um, as to what the Russian Foreign Ministry did in India? They have a very old and a very deep relation relationship. We need to understand that they are allies since the very beginning, or they are partners since the very beginning. And I think, and I think, we need to be very careful in the choice of words. Words matter, languages matter, and uh, All of those things put together have implications for how we present our work. So it's important for us to understand that, um, look, it is very unfair uh, if we are to... you know, limit our relations with Russia or limit our relations with Iran just because Iran and Russia are both on good terms with India. And there's this one simple philosophy. You miss, I hit. I think if a country is surreptitiously or overtly allying with your enemy, I think you should Focus on that country more. Why? Why should you leave space open for the Indians? If you just abandon that country because it is in a good in a good partnership with India, that that will give India more space. I, as a Pakistani, would not want India to gain more space than it already has. And this is where, again, I would stress the uh, stress why pakistan's relations with relations with the US are very important. India, ever since the end of the Cold War, has taken it upon him upon itself to turn a page in its relations with the US. It targeted think tanks, it targeted universities, it targeted people on the hill and Every person who mattered in and around the Beltway and in the overall TC community. Unfortunately, we were not in the picture in those uh, since now uh, in those thirty years. So we gave them everything on the platter. So this is not what you have to do. Uh, why don't we work towards? Diversify, diversifying our foreign policy portfolio. We should go into Africa. I'm happy that the government has uh, launched the Look Africa initiative. That's very important. We should not say that India, if, Africa, if we invest in Africa, then we'll in we should invest in If India doesn't invest do in why can't we be the trendsetters? And even a cursory look at Pakistan's history would would tell you this one simple thing. So if Pakistan wants to do it, Pakistan can do it. And what gives me hope is that there is complete unanimity of opinion. There is this realization that things have to change. There's also this realization that the way foreign policy was made before is outdated and we need to involve many an actor in the entire scheme of things. We saw that uh, in 2018, the government uh, instituted the Prime Minister's Advisory Council on Foreign Affairs. Excellent initiative. The NST is doing a very good job. There are challenges aplenty but if we have taken this direction I think that is only a step in the right direction. Uh, However the proof lies in the pudding. So we need to ensure that these lofty aims are not do not only remain aims but efforts should be started to achieve these aims in earnest and for that to happen it's important that our policies are consistent our policies are clearly articulated and our policies uh, are dynamic and they should be adaptive so being inflexible i take you back to putin so the crux of putin's 20-year foreign policy outlook. Has been that he has realized that Russia needs a lot of reforms. Russia needs improvements galore before it could come back in the game. So he did that. And he had that one aim that we need to be a great power once again. But in doing that, he was tactically very flexible so we have to be strategically sound but we have to be tactically very flexible and flexibility would help us open new vistas of opportunities while those opportunities would be would be complemented by many threats but our our ability or our or the ability of our system to absorb the changing milieu and to absorb the very many new ideas that come to the fore through a variety of channels that would determine what trajectory pakistan is uh, uh, is and is taking and will
0: take going forward Right, and you know, talking about flexibility and talking about new approaches in um, you know crafting your foreign policy. I personally, I recent um, the recent Islamabad dialogue. I, I think initiatives like that are are needed a lot. We need to have a space for for younger academics and you know thinkers to come into this space and um, give give a space to people other than you know the traditional corridors of power when it comes to pakistan's foreign policy making so ali to bring it all uh, to bring it all together my last question so now by now we've established that ali does not think that uh, russia is a declining power uh, you believe that you know they want to reassert themselves and um, that you know russia and uh, india do have a very very deep relationship it's a nascent power if i want, if i were to put sure. it and also that you know there will be growing cooperation between india and the us as we go forward so what then, then should pakistan aim for when it comes to our um, relations with russia um, other than what many people would like us to believe like in that the only thing that we can get out of this is the s400 maybe
1: okay there's no harm in aiming for the, for the s400 so, but for but for that you need to have a very heavy pocket and work on expanding the pocket do you so, do you think we need the s400 why should we not need a system that can engage 36 targets simultaneously and simultaneously fire 72 missiles. Why would we not need uh, a system that uh, that has a radar coverage of 600 kilometers and that can shoot down enemy aircraft, missiles and other things uh, till a range of 400 kilometers? So, if we have money, why not? But we need to expand the size of the pie. So, we need... To fill our coffers, we need to um, become an economic power to reckon with. So, and Russia would be more than willing to give you S four hundred if you if you have the money to buy, it, to buy uh, to buy it. I think Pakistan, uh, as I said earlier, Pakistan has to take what's on off. Incremental steps, sans emotion and visceral, are the way to go. Russia is helping you with energy. Take it. Russia wants to supply you with weapons, so you should not be saying that. No, you're supplying us with the assault rifles, but we we don't need that. We need a nuclear submarine. No, this is not happening. So if it's giving you assault rifles, take it. Take them, because for now. Russia and you dono ye chahte terrorism is in this region mein curtail so agar wo curtail ho benefit then raha hai so that is important it is very important for both countries to start working towards creating a, a, a very robust people to people relation scholarship should kar sakte we can talk about student exchange programs we can talk about academic cooperation think tank cooperation this is something that can happen and there is, there is no cost to be incurred so this could happen and one of the key keys that Pakistan should focus on is that Russia should be lured in to join CPEC Or CPEC plus n ko aap expand. Kere. Because again Russia Pakistan Andrew Koripko, one of my friends, he has written a lot on, on these areas, on these issues. So usne Pakistan is the zipper of Eurasia. So what you Russia ka Greater Eurasian partnership hai, which relies on linking up with the BRI. So Pakistan could could be the ideal zipper or the ideal conduit for Russia to do that. So Pakistan has to ensure. And for that to happen, one of the tactical areas that Pakistan and Russia can cooperate on and continue to cooperate on and the most is that Pakistan and Russia should match their notes when it comes to Afghanistan. They are already doing that but they should continue doing that. Because that's very important. Because all the linchpin jo hai, peace in advance. So that's very important. So no spoiler should be allowed at any cost to harm this equation. I don't say that Pakistan has ko able to casualize Russia uh, casualty, or Russia has able to do it. But the idea is that if both are on page in one page, maybe they have different interests. So we should take advantage of that. So now and going forward, we should we should start a strategic dialogue between the two countries. Like can strategic dialogue to have when you have a lot of agenda items on the table. So Abi the comment of relations is small. So I Okay, we don't have a good history with them. We were we were enemies during the Cold War. Like wo enemies wo, uh indirect enemies then. We were not like completely at loggerheads. Minus that uh, 7th May 1960, U 2 incident, Uske lava, matlab, mm-hmm. we could uh, bring in that uh, uh, Indo Soviet treaty that was signed on 20th November 1971, that, uh, according to some, played a very instrumental role in breaking and dismembering Pakistan. So I think bitter memories are there. So But now the equation has changed completely. So we need to be uh, mindful of the challenges we need, we need to go. Through. So going slow, but working towards developing a very durable relationship that is free from the constrictions of India, U.S. I know it's a difficult challenge. It is a difficult task. It's a tall order, but this is what we have to do. And this is what we need to work towards. And means, if you, if you bring India and bring agar back to India, Crip in India ke India grip. Let me predict that as well. US karega. But we need to you know keep quiet and up our line. And we will start with soft areas. Sports, climate change. So there are many areas in, in which we can work on. Taki uspe, soft areas, expectations come on so if expectations come have, so there are less chances of friction If like we start expect if we tomorrow from tomorrow we start expecting that russia is our savior tank so to so keep it slow keep it be practical be pragmatic and go uh, slow.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, for me, ultimately, it all, it all comes down to the old IR adage that, you know, there are no permanent friends or enemies in, in international politics. Lord
1: Palmerston, I yeah. I have quoted him like eight times since the past two, three days. And I would again, again, repeat. Uh, and I think to wrap this all, this up, I would like to say that it is critically important for us to understand the nuances of global politics. Yeah. Uh, and this, ye as a subject, people Look, we can talk whatever we want to, um, sitting at home and on Twitter, but the realities are quite different. Uh, we um, we are not. Like foreign, nek in domestic policy, me freedom of domestic policy, foreign policy. Because your policy, among other things, depends on the reaction and the resistance of the other party. You unilaterally, so you have to a billion for Pakistan. But unilaterally, you have to because that involves the other party as well. So, this is not we need to understand foreign policy has restrictions and um, limitations hoti hai, wo domestic policy. Mein hoti. So, we should use our freedom to act in the domestic realm to good effect. Or if we can domestically strong, so that will uh, pay us rich dividends when it comes to foreign policy. Um, you know, Approaches
0: that we are likely to take. Over. Well, and ultimately, I think to sum up, you know, we countries will only partner with us if we have some benefit for them. But at the same time, we should not compromise what's in our best interest as well. On that note, thank you so much, Ali. It was a very insightful conversation. I personally learned a lot. I hope our audience at home also uh, learned some got something out from it. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you everyone for tuning in, and we hope you will tune in for uh, future episodes as well. Thank you.